2 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. I must go on boasting, though there's nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast except in my weaknesses. Though if, I should, though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. The writer of Psalm 119 says, The Lord is my portion. I have promised to keep your words, O God. We entreat your favor with all of our hearts, Lord. Be gracious to us according to your word this morning, for Jesus' sake. Amen. I have a question for you. What's the one thing about you that you could change if you would? What's the one thing about your life and circumstances that you so dearly wish were different that you would do anything to change that. There are things in life that we just can't change, but if you could, if you could, what's that one thing about you, about your life, about your circumstances that you would change if you could? Whatever that thing is, I hope by the time we're finished this morning that I have a little bit different perspective on it. And that maybe, by God's grace, you may even realize that that thing you want to change is the very thing that you need to hold on to. It's the very thing that you need to embrace. It's the very thing that you actually need to thank God for. Because it's the thing that he will use to make himself very near and very dear to you and to make you useful for him. Pretty clear, isn't it, from our passage that we just read that Paul has what he refers to as a thorn in the flesh. Uh, speculation over the last uh, two millennia has almost been endless as to what Paul's thorn actually was. 
Um, there are no less than eight reputable, and I call them reputable theories uh, because they were proposed by reputable men or women. Um, but I'm just going to give you the top three <laughs> uh, or four. But number one, uh, the main thing that's been suggested, suggested and probably has the most biblical uh, justification is that Paul had an eye problem. Uh, when he writes to the Galatians in Galatians chapter 4, he, he says to them, I bear you witness that when I was with you, if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. And people say, see, that's, you know, that's obvious evidence that Paul had some sort of a uh, debilitating, even painful eye disease. And when you get near uh, the end of Galatians, right at the end of the letter, <clears throat> he says, see with what big letters I write. And the people who believe this theory say, see, Paul wanted to see what he was writing, and in order to see it properly, he had to write very large letters. Again, testifying to the fact that uh, these folks believe that he had some sort of a serious eye problem. Other people say, no, it wasn't an eye problem, it was a speech problem. Um, in this epistle that I just read from, 2 Corinthians, in chapter 10, uh, Paul says that, you Corinthians, when you talk about me, uh, you say, Paul's letters are weighty, they're authoritative, they're powerful. But when Paul is with us here in person, and you listen to him, his speech is contemptible. When you hear him speak, you think, who is this Paul? He can't even speak properly. And they say, see, evidently Paul had some sort of a, uh, a speech impairment, uh, maybe a stutter, you know, who knows what, but some way in which that he had difficulty in speaking. Uh, some have pr proposed epilepsy, saying no, Paul had recurring uh, bouts, recurring uh, epileptic seizures throughout his life. Um, and at that time, there was no real medical treatment to control that. Uh, I guess it's possible. Others said, no, he had malaria. Uh, and malaria was something that's uh, kind of like Lyme's disease is today. It never totally leaves your body. And uh, they believe he had ongoing bouts of malaria. But guys, the honest truth, we don't know what Paul's thorn was. <laughs> we don't know what Paul's thorn was. We can speculate. Uh, we can come up with what we think is the most promising theory, but the truth is we don't know. And I think that's by divine design. Because by not knowing, wouldn't you agree that you and I are able to relate to Paul and to what he's going through uh, in a lot more personal and even more powerful way since we don't know? Because what he's going through might be our problem and might be what we struggle with. And that's my next question. What's your thorn? What's your thorn? Maybe like Paul, you have an actual physical thorn, maybe, uh, maybe a birth defect, uh, maybe a, a defect or uh, a damage to your body done in some kind of an accident, uh, maybe a, a recurring disease uh, that causes you pain. Um, but whatever it is, it's a real physical problem that may cause you uh, emotional and physical pain, one or the other, or maybe both. And you just wish it was, it just wears you down. 
maybe it's not a, a physical thorn for you. Maybe it's something about your physical appearance. We're never quite happy with ourselves, are we? You know, I, I, I wish I was a little taller. Or, or I, you know, if you're six foot five, like my son, six foot four and a half, I wish I wasn't so tall. I wish I was a little shorter. Or I wish I could lose a, fa a few pounds. I'm, I'm just too heavy, you know? Or, or you know, I'm, I'm skinny as a rake. No matter what I eat, I can't even put on a pound. You know, they call me the walking skeleton. Or maybe it's something you just, you know, someone else has and you wish it, like you might be saying, I wish, I wish I had platinum blonde hair like Gary. <laughs> Whatever it is, we're not always happy, are we? There's always something different uh, about our appearance that we'd like to have. Or maybe with you, it's your personality, you know? I'm, I'm too shy. I'm too shy. I'm never comfortable in a crowd and I hate that about myself. I wish I could go into a, uh, a party at somebody's house where I didn't know, you know, three quarters of the people there and just learn to talk to people openly, you know, and uh, kind of like my friend Ken, he can always come up with those witty one-liners to introduce himself to new people and, you know, just has a way of fitting right in and that's not me and I hate that about myself. Well, maybe it's not your personality. Maybe with you it's a proneness to a particular temptation. Something that's, uh, that you've struggled with maybe for months, maybe for years, maybe for decades. And, and the weight of having had this temptation in your life and maybe given into it so many times over the years, the weight of having it there weighs you down in your Christian life and makes you feel like a second-class citizen, spiritually speaking. Maybe it's another person. Maybe somebody you work with. The alarm, alarm clock goes off on Monday morning, and the only thing worse than the thought of getting out of bed and going to work is that that person that you have to work with is going to be there. Difficult to get along with at all, much less to have to work with all day. Or maybe it's someone in your own house, a person that you love very dearly. Maybe someone you love very dearly who's involved in uh, dis personally destructive behavior that not only threatens your relationship with them, but potentially threatens their health and their well-being. And you worry about them, right? You worry about them. You know how it is with family members, with people we love. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, joy of my heart, pain of my neck. Isn't, isn't it true that the people we love the most also have the greatest ability to hurt us? It's true. Maybe for you it's another person who hurt you in the past, maybe way back. Someone <clears throat> who hurt you so deeply that in a very sense, very real sense, you're here in the in the present. You're here physically, but mentally, you're still back there. It's like you're frozen in the past because what this person or persons did to you hurt you so much that you've never really been able to get on with life as you should. Unable to live in the present because you're frozen in the past. 
Maybe it's not a past person. Maybe it's a past failure, a failed relationship, a failed marriage, a failed business. Or if you're like a friend of mine, a business that he went into with his very best friend, and not only did the business fail, but so did their friendship permanently. Whatever, whatever your thorn is, it's something that you wish more than anything else that you could change about your life and your circumstances. Notice what Paul's reaction is to his thorn. He tells us uh, about the struggle and how painful it is. And then notice what he says in verse 8. He says, three times I entreated, or your version might say, I begged the Lord. The word literally means to beg. Three times I begged the Lord that it might be taken away from me. So Paul's initial response is to draw back, to withdraw from the thorn. And that's what you and I do, right? I mean, when we feel pain, we back off. It's not because we're sinners, it's because we're God's creatures and we recoil from pain. And there's nothing wrong with that, especially as a first reaction. But then Paul begins to get a different perspective after his initial drawback, he gets a different perspective. But again, I want to remind you, there's nothing wrong with that initial response to draw back. Remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before he was crucified? Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass away from me. Yet not my will be done, but yours be done. So nothing wrong with initially recoiling. But then notice, Paul, gets his, Paul entreats the Lord three times. And with Paul, that wasn't three two-minute prayers. I guarantee you that was three at least day-long day fastings, vigils, where he begged God to take it away. And notice the Lord's response, verse 9, the first half. But the Lord said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in your weakness. And you know, it's kind of like it's, it's the Lord's way of saying, Paul, listen to me. I'm not taking the thorn away. Not now, not ever. But that's not God saying, look, tough, learn to deal with it. Not that at all. He's saying, Paul, I'm not, I'm not taking it away. I'm not taking it away now. I'm not ever going to take it away. But I'm not taking it away because it's there for a reason. And the reason that it's there, Paul, is because I want to live my life powerfully through you, more powerfully than you could ever imagine. But here's the problem, Paul. Here's the problem. Without that thorn, your, your personal sinfulness, your personal arrogance will get the best of you, and you will try your best. Instead of showing the world my power, you'll want to show them your ability. But because of the thorn, Paul, I'm going to live powerfully through you and the thorn's going to keep you dependent on me. It's going to keep you humble. And as I live my life powerfully through you, people are going to see me and my power and not your ability. And guys, that's exactly how it is with you and I. It's embracing the thorns that God brings into our lives that unleashes his power. Power, he says, my power, says the Lord, is perfected in your weakness. So what's Paul's 
response. Seems like he doesn't, once he gets that word from the Lord, it seems like he doesn't have to wait long to make up his mind. The last half of verse 9 and the first half of verse 10. <clears throat> Therefore, I will most gladly boast of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Paul says, if I have to have this thorn so that the Lord can use me and use me in a powerful way, then so be it. I welcome the thorn. I thank the Lord for the thorn. I'll even boast about the thorn. I'll boast about my weaknesses so that people can see Christ in me but not see me. And that's what God wants to do through you and I as well, guys. <clears throat> you know, problems, difficulties in life are a given. Remember James chapter 1 where he, where he says, my brothers, count it all joy when you encounter various trials. Not if you encounter them, but when you do. Because we all do. Trials, pain, struggle, thorns are just an inevitable part of life. The only question is, for us as believers, how do we react to them? How do we react to them? And I was, I was trying to think of a biblical example, and... In my mind, I went back to a psalm that used to really, really puzzle me. Uh, I'm going to read you just the first half of this psalm. Uh, and then we're going to kind of notice the contrast between the first and second half. And <clears throat> these letters, this is one of the few Bibles, the um, font's no bigger than it was in the first service. Um, o come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. It is his hand, in his hands are the depths of the earth and the heights of the mountains are his. The sea is his for he made it and his hands formed the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our God, our maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. That's the first half of the verse. Look at the second half. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Mirabah as on the day at Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me, though they saw my work. For 40 years I was grieved, I was angry with that generation, and I said, it is a people who go astray in their hearts and they do not know my way. And I used to think, what in the world is going on in this psalm? It's, it's almost like, the critical scholars, who I don't believe, but it's almost like they're right. It's almost like somebody took two half psalms and just stuck them together to make one. Because I couldn't make any sense. There didn't seem to be any flow of argument. It seemed to be a complete uh, departure between the first half and the second half. But you know what? The more you think about it, it makes all the sense in the world. Because what the psalm writer is saying in the first half is, praise God. He deserves your praise. He made the mountains. He made the seas. He made us. We're, we're the sheep of his pasture, and, the, and we're his people, and he deserves our praise. And, 
And I think specifically the psalm writer has in mind when the trials of life come. When the trials of life come, he deserves our praise. We're, we're the sheep of his pasture and the people of his hand. You can do that. You can praise him. Or you can harden your heart like the people of Israel did. And then uses an example when God brought the people of Israel to Kadesh Barnea, uh, wanted them to go in and take possession of the land. But remember, they steadfastly refused. The Lord said, look, I know there's giants in the land. I know there's this problem, that problem. But we're going to take care of all that. Just go. Just trust me. Believe me that this, this obstacle, this difficulty, this thorn is here for a reason. Trust me. They steadfastly refused to. They rebelled against him. And the Lord said, there are people who always go astray. They do not know my ways. Now listen, but keep in mind as I say that though, this is the redeemed people. This is people that were led out of the land of Egypt by the blood of the Passover lamb over the door, remember? And by the opening of the Red Sea, which I believe are symbolic of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ shed for us and the opening of his grave, his resurrection. So this is a redeemed people, but when, but when struggles, when difficulties, when problems, when thorns come into to our lives, God expects us to trust him as his redeemed people. And we have a choice, guys. We have a choice. What are you choosing about your thorn? Wasn't it the Apostle Paul the same one who wrote 2 Corinthians who said in Philippians chapter 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say, rejoice. Where was Paul when he wrote that? In jail. Exactly. Exactly. In a Roman dungeon. I guarantee it wasn't anything like the Taj Mahal and Jeffco. And yet Paul sitting in a Roman prison in chains says, rejoice no matter what's going on in your life. Rejoice in the Lord. Trust the Lord always. Always. And you know, I, I always found it interesting. The only time I've been able to discover in the Gospels where the Lord Jesus openly praises God in public is in Matthew chapter 11. He's been traveling in, in the, the cities around the Sea of Galilee, Capernaum, uh, Bethsaida, Chorazin. And he performed, the Bible tells us, some of his most miraculous, some of his most incredible miracles were done in those cities. And yet those people rejected him. They rejected him. And as he's leaving, Matthew 11 says, he looked up to heaven and he says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent and you have revealed them unto babes. Why would Jesus rejoice? Why would he thank God, praise God after being rejected? Because when we do, guys, when we do, it's an admission of our own helplessness and weakness and dependence on God. And that releases him because he's irresistibly attracted to weakness. That releases him and releases his Holy Spirit to just flow through our life and through our experience. And we find that he is very near and very dear to us. And we find that we're actually useful for him. Um... I have a thorn that actually isn't 
much of a thorn to me anymore, but at one time in my life, it really was. I think, you'll find, I think we find, as you go along in life, that uh, there are different thorns in different seasons of life. But probably the one that was the biggest struggle for me in my early life, um, I was born uh, with uh, what's medically called a benign essential tremor. And basically, it means my hands shake. Uh, my dad had it. It's hereditary. Uh, supposedly, one in every 20 Americans has it. Uh, I didn't even notice it as a kid. As a kid, you don't notice those kind of things. You don't care about those kind of things. My first recollection of it is uh, in junior high, seventh grade, um, I went to Catholic school in New Jersey, and we used to have to write a, a paper on any science topic that we wanted to. Not a long paper, maybe just one sheet. Uh, any science topic we wanted to, and then every Friday you read the paper in class. Well, when it first started, we used to read them from our desk. Uh, and then uh, the sister got the idea that, no, you're going to come up front and read it. So I'll never forget this one Friday. I get my paper, and I was a little concerned, but not overly, because I'd never been worried about my hand tremor before. But I get up and I'm reading the paper, I'm starting to read, and I'm realizing that I'm shaking quite a bit because I am nervous, uh, so I'm shaking more than I normally would. And I'm shaking, and, and I look up, and my buddy Eddie, uh, I won't use his last name because we're still friends on Facebook 40-something years later, he's, he's sitting like in the second or third row, and when I look up, he looks at me and he goes... <laughs> and as soon as he did... It was like the tremor went times five. And I start, now I can't even see it, much less read it. And the nun, the sister said to me, Gary, Gary, just put it down on my desk. Just put it on my desk and read it. So I, I set it down on the desk and I, I read it standing on the desk. I will tell you to this day, of course it's easy to talk about now, it doesn't mean anything anymore. But that was one of the most, I don't think I've ever been more humiliated or embarrassed in my life than I was at that moment. And it stuck with me, and what it did was it gave me a sort of out-of-all-proportion fear of this hand tremor. Um, through my teens and into my early 20s even, I can, I can remember uh, going on a, a, a date, going to this girl's house, and her mother says, oh, it's a cold day outside, wouldn't you just, I'll just let me get you both a nice big glass of hot chocolate steaming hot chocolate. I'm like, no, 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 please. Just water, half a glass of cold water, please. Because, I mean, I could, I could, I could, with anybody watching me, with anybody, I couldn't pick up something hot. I'd have the glass empty and have my hand burn before I got it to my mouth. Not because I couldn't normally with nobody around. Of course I could. But I was so self-conscious about this thing that, again, it was blown out of all proportion. Okay, so I, I become a believer in Christ in the biblical sense when I'm 26. <clears throat> and I can feel after not too long that I believe the Lord wants me to be preparing for some kind of vocational ministry. Um, and at 28, uh, in my local church, they asked me to be an elder. And I said, well, I'll be an elder, but under one condition. And I knew the guys really well. And they're like, what? I said, well, you know the trade? we serve communion has all those little cups I said I'm not touching that so you guys are going to have to serve communion I'll serve as an elder but I'm not serving communion and they're like oh okay don't worry about it guy we don't care you know and they did they were they were good guys they didn't care but then it 
as I got closer to 30, I get baptized. And within two weeks of my baptism, I knew, I didn't think I knew the Lord wanted me to prepare for vocational ministry. I had a mentor, a dear pastor friend, uh, who was a graduate of Dallas Seminary. And right at that time, Dallas Seminary had opened up an extension uh, on the campus of Philadelphia College of the Bible, right across the river where I lived in New Jersey. So I could be there in an hour uh, for classes on the weekend. So my friend, the pastor, saying, yeah, this is work out perfect. I'll write out a recommendation for you. You know, you fill out all. So I'm making an application to go to Dallas Seminary. But it's eating at me more and more and more. Gary, how are you going to be a pastor? You can't even serve communion. And so I had lunch with my pastor friend, and I explained to him what was going on. And he said to me, Gary, have you ever thanked God for your shaky hands? Have you ever thanked God for your tremor? And I could, you have to understand the respect and awe that I had for this man and how much I loved him. But the first thought, Lord, forgive me, that came to my mind was, are you some kind of an idiot? What do you mean, thank God for my tremor? I just want it gone. I want to serve God, and this stupid thing's standing in my way. I think I did say that part to him. And by the time we were having lunch weekly by then, he was mentoring me. And as we broke up, he said, Gary, I just want you to think about this during this coming week. Your problem is not your hand tremor. I'm not going to tell you what it is, but your problem is not your hand tremor. <laughs> right at that time, um, I was using a devotional, which, interestingly, Eric mentioned last week in his message. I think in the 70s and 80s, everybody was reading Oswald Chambers, my utmost for his highest. And I was reading my utmost for his highest. And two days after that luncheon, I'm reading, I open it up, and he starts talking about discouragement, uh, how, how debilitating discouragement can be to Christians. Are you feeling discouraged today? Do you, do you really feel like you're discouraged and not able to do the things that you want to do for God, you know, because there's this problem or that problem? I'm like, yes, yes, that's exactly, yes, oh my gosh, this guy gets it. Finally, somebody that gets how I'm feeling. And then halfway down the page, he says, if that's you and you're really discouraged, then know this. Discouragement is nothing more than unfulfilled self-love. And I was like, oh, geez, I wasn't expecting that. I, um, I met with my pastor friend for lunch a couple days later, and I, told, I showed him. I brought him, and I showed him that, and he said, I've been praying for you all week, Gar." He said, um, your problem is not your tremor. He goes, your problem is you're young and you're arrogant. <laughs> it's pride. He said, and personally, until you're able to thank God for your thorn, uh, I had told him that I was thinking of tearing up my application for Dallas Seminary. He goes, until you're able to thank the Lord for it, you might as well tear it up. And it was a turning point for me, but I said, no, I'm not. That, that next Sunday, I went to the guys in my church, and we would meet early. It was first Sunday, and we were having communion, and I walked in, and I said to this one guy, Tom, who was a good friend and uh, a guy who makes a joke out of everything, and I said, uh, hey, I'm, I'm going to serve communion this morning, and Tom goes, whoa, he said, get the tarps out, 
<laughs> we'll have to spread one on everybody's lap. <laughs> Gary's serving communion, you know. <laughs> and I was like, you know what? You're joking, Tom, but you might want to do that. <laughs> you might, might want to at least warn people, you know. And you know what? I, I did embarrass myself. That I wasn't, I should say this, I was embarrassed that day because I was shaking. And, and I would take the tray and my hands were trembling, but I didn't spill a drop. I got through it. And from then on, it just got better and better because you know what? I stopped worrying about it. It just, it went away. That was in the spring of 1988. The fall of 1988, I started classes at Dallas Seminary. And let me just tell you that over that summer, all I can remember is that the Lord became nearer and dearer to me than he had ever been. And as a result of what happened, I think in the years to come, I became more useful for him than I ever dreamed I could be. You know, remember, remember the incident when Moses is at the burning bush and the Lord's telling him basically, uh, I'm going to send you back to Egypt and I want you to deliver my people Israel out of bondage. And Moses is coming up with all these reasons why he can't. And the, the big one seems to be, Lord, I'm slow of speech. And the Hebrew phrase there is not an easy one, but it, it implies some sort of a speech impediment. I like to think, and I can't prove this, but I like to think he had a stutter. And I can picture Moses standing before the burning bush. Lord, I, I can't do that. I'm a st stutterer. And the Lord kind of ends up giving in, and at least to the degree that he goes, look, I'm going to send Aaron with you. He can be your mouthpiece, but you're going, Moses. You're going. And Moses... Exodus chapter 4 and verse 11. Moses, who is it that has made man's mouth? Who is it that makes the deaf, the dumb, the seeing, and the blind? Have not I, the Lord? <laughs> In other words, Moses, I created you. Don't you think I know that you have a speech problem? <laughs> Don't you think I've thought ahead about that? Don't you think you ought to be willing to trust me with that? I don't know how many of you heard of uh, Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse. Uh, in the previous century, Dr. Barnhouse sort of revolutionized uh, radio in terms of being a medium for Christian preachers. Through the 1930s, 40s, and 50s, uh, he became a nationwide uh, select. He was the first big name radio preacher that everybody listened to. He was the, he was the pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia for almost 30 years, and just an incredible man of God and an incredible communicator uh, of the Bible. And he also used to hold conferences in churches, and he was holding co a conference in this one church uh, in, in central Pennsylvania, and the church was living in expectation of the fact that the pastor and his wife were about to have their first child. And on the first night of meetings, Dr. Barnhouse is getting up to preach, and the pastor still has not arrived. So Dr. Barnhouse figures, well, maybe, maybe the baby's coming because it was due any minute. Uh, so he goes ahead with his message, and just as the meeting is wrapping up, the pastor, his nickname was Cap, everybody called him Cap, Cap comes running down the aisle and comes up and sits right next to Dr. Barnhouse. Dr. Barnhouse closes in prayer, and Cap jumps up and says, Dr. Barnhouse, in my study, i got to talk to you right now. They go into his study, and he says, what's the matter, Cap? He said, my wife's just had our firstborn child, it's a boy, and he has Down syndrome. 
And Dr. Barnhouse, man that he was, said, praise the Lord, Cap. He goes, let me show you something. And he turns to Exodus 4.11. He says, Cap, do you know that in Exodus 4.11, the Lord says, who is it that has made man's mouth? And who is it who makes the deaf, the dumb, the seeing, and the blind? Have not I, the Lord? He goes, bless the Lord for what he's done in this situation. He goes, Cap, who knows what God's going to accomplish through this? And he grabs, Cap grabs Dr. Barnhouse's Bible. He says, let me see that. And he reads Exodus 4, Exodus 4 verse 11. And he said, my wife doesn't even know yet. He said, I got to get back to the hospital. He goes, flying back to the hospital. Goes into the hospital room and his wife said, Cap, what's wrong? What's wrong? They won't even let me see my baby. Something's wrong. He said, honey, God has given us a little boy and he has Down syndrome and we need to thank the Lord for him. He said, you know why, hon? Do you know that in Exodus chapter 4 and verse 11, the Lord says, who has made man's mouth and who makes the deaf, the dumb, the seeing and the blind? Have not I, the Lord? And his wife grabs the Bible and says, let me see that. And she reads it and she says, I've got to call my mom. She's been trying to get through and she doesn't know what's going on. I've got to tell her. Now, this is back in the days when hospitals had switchboards and switchboards had switchboard operators who listened in on people's phone calls. And the gal who was operating the switchboard happened to be a gal who had not only no time for Christianity in general, but no time for Christians, period. And when she knew what, the, what was going on and she was asked by the pastor and his wife to place the call to her mom and to connect them, she said to herself, I can't wait. This was by her own admission later. This is all a true story, guys. I can't wait to hear what this godly woman says to her mother about having a Down syndrome baby. And when the two were connected, the pastor's wife says, Mom, the Lord has given us a Down syndrome little boy and we are just celebrating. We're just thanking the Lord for what he's done. She said, Mom, do you know that Exodus 4.11 says, Who has made man's mouth? And who is it that makes the deaf, the dumb, the seeing, and the blind? Have not I the Lord? Well, as Paul Harvey would say, the sequel or the rest of the story is the best part. The next Sunday, Cap gets up to preach in his church. And sitting in front of him are... 60 or 70 employees from the hospital, including the switchboard operator. And near the end of his message, Dr. Barnhouse simply says, you know, I know a lot of you folks are not regular attenders here. He said, and I just want to remind you of the truth of John 3:16 that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. It's a gift. It's absolutely free. No fine print, no strings attached when you simply stop trusting in yourself and your own good works to get to heaven and transfer that trust completely to Christ. Because when he died on the cross for your sins, he paid for every sin you'd ever commit from the cradle to the grave. And by simply trusting in him, you get eternal life as a gift. And that morning, 30 people from that hospital responded publicly. Weren't even, a couple people started to get up. Dr. Barnhouse didn't even ask them to. And then groups of people came up and prayed. And there were 30 people who came to faith that day. A little Down syndrome baby in the first week of his life is responsible for 30 people coming to personal faith in Jesus Christ. Guys, do you think it was an accident? Do you, do you think God had his head turned for a minute and 
something happened that that baby was born as a Down syndrome child instead of born healthy and normal? No way. No way. It truly was a gift, and it was a gift to two people who loved him very much, and God was working his perfect plans and purposes in their lives for his glory and for his kingdom. I don't know what your thorn is, but whatever it is, I pray that God would not give you peace until you're able to thank him for it, no matter what it is. Because at the moment that you do thank him for it, at that moment he will become nearer and dearer to you than you ever imagined, and you will become more useful for him than you ever, ever dreamed possible. Father, would you take your word, which scripture tells us is living and powerful, would you apply it to the hearts of your people? Make it real, make it relevant, make it life-transforming for Jesus' sake.